after the fact that he had done all of this, that things sort of turned and went downhill with Gideon. We know that he chose uh, to, uh, to, to act out of what God had said. He began to enlist other people to help, which God had not commanded. But uh, as we look at him and his life, they offered for him to be the king. And Gideon said, no, I don't think that's right. And so he said, I'm not going to be the king. My sons are not going to be the king over you. But his lifestyle showed something different. You see, he exacted from the people uh, a great amount of money. He, uh, from that goal that he got from them, he, he fashioned an ephod and he put it in his own hometown and people began to worship that golden idol. And as we look at him, we saw also last week that he married many wives in, uh, in defiance of God's law. He married many wives, and he also had a concubine, had a mistress down in Shechem. And from that mistress, he had a son. They had 70 sons from his wives, but he also had this illegitimate son down in Shechem. And so as we look at him and we begin to think about the life of Gideon, one of the things that just jumps out at me is how the actions of a person can have influence on future generations. And we'll see that tonight in our lesson as we study about the Bramble King. We will see how the actions of, of Gideon sort of set things in motion and how they continued to go downhill with his own family and with people around him. And so as we, as we think about tonight, the Bramble King, let's just dive right into the topic and into the subject, and let's think about what is happening. If you go in the book of Judges, chapter 8, verse 33, we find the end of the life of Gideon. The Bible says as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, we can't say tonight that everything that Gideon did was bad. We understand that there was some good in him. And he, as we noted at the end of our lesson last week, he is mentioned in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, in the hall of fame of the faithful. And so he's mentioned there, but not everything Gideon did was done by faith. And that was the point of last week's lesson. And he did do some good, but here the people forgot about the good that he did. They also forgot about his family, and even though uh, we may take up part of his family, we will take up part of his family, at least one of his sons tonight, they forget about the others, didn't do right by them, because we're going to find out tonight that this one son who is down in Shechem, he's going to have the 70 sons, except for one of them, executed. And so they didn't protect them, they didn't, they didn't stop all of that. But as we look at it, that's what is said. And so what we have is the return to the cycle that's found in the book of Judges. They do good for a little while, and then they turn right back around and fall back into sin. 
And uh, they, they come under oppression and they're going to need another deliverer. They're returning back to that cycle uh, of following after other gods rather than the one true and living God. Now Gideon had helped to set them on this path with his golden ephod and his lifestyle, but they continued down the road turning further and further away from God. And as we'll see in a moment, uh, they, they, they turned completely, at least a lot of them, turned completely away from what they should have been doing in their life. And so we have the end of the life of Gideon. But what happens after this and the people are on that road to sin? Well, we find one of the sons, this son by, from uh, Shechem, we find him, Abimelech, wanting to be king. If you remember last week, we were talking just a little bit about Abimelech. We mentioned his name last week. His name is made from a compound word, and it literally means Abi, meaning uh, son, Melech, meaning king, the son of the king. And so he doesn't just want to be the son of a king, but he wants to be king. He desires to be king. Look at Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel, of course, as we noted in our last reading, Jerubbabel is Gideon. Jerubbabel is the name given to Gideon, by the way, uh, when he challenged uh, Baal, or at least Baal was to challenge him. Uh, now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother." He wanted to be the king, and as you look at it, I want you to see the argument that Abimelech makes. Abimelech's argument, how, how in the world could you folks be able ever to serve under 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 of Gideon's son? Wouldn't you be better off just to serve under one? Well, think about that for a moment. Think about how it would be to have 70 leaders, 70 rulers, uh, 70 people to try to please, 70 people giving directions, and you're trying to follow them, and surely some of them are going to contradict. Jesus said in the New Testament in the book of Matthew that no man can serve two masters. And he was right, and so, you know, Abimelech has a pretty good argument on the face of it, how, how could you ever serve 70 men? And so, you know, he makes that argument. But he also says, you know, you really need to choose me, guys, because I'm one of you. That's another one of his arguments there. You really need to make me the king. I'm one of the sons of Jerubbabel and sons of Gideon, so you really need to make me the king rather than trying to serve under 70 different leaders. You need to make me the king because I'm one of you. And did you notice what he said, what he said there in the book of Judges chapter 9, verse number 3 at the very end of the verse? They decided to do that because they said, He is our brother. 
You know, think about that for a second. He's one of us. He, he, he's a good guy. He, he, he's got our interest in mind because, you know, he comes from the same place. He's lived like us. He knows us. And so surely he'll be a good king for us. He'll, be, uh, he, he'll take care of us. Well, he is our brother. Now, that's part of the argument that he make is, makes as we read these three. But I want you to focus in on one particular thing that Abimelech, uh, that Abimelech says here. Notice his question that he asks them. Forget about the 70 rulers and the fact that he is the, uh, uh, one of them. Notice the question, which is better for you? Notice where Abimelech places the focus. Which is better for you? Isn't that sort of the theme of the book? The people are doing what they want to do. As far back as the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 12, at verse number 8, Moses warns them, he said to them, says, You shall not do according to all that we're doing here today, Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Before they ever got to the land, God, through Moses, told them, don't do that. But we know at the end of the book of Judges, that's the way things had become. In reality, Judges chapter 21 at verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's sort of what Abimelech is asking them to do. Do what's right in your own eyes by making me the king. Which is best for you? You see, his concern was not what, what does God think or what does God say, which is best for you. He's appealing to the self-interest in the fleshly side of these people. Which is best for you? You know, none of us want to feel bad, do we? We don't want to hurt. We don't want to go through hard times. We always want to increase our personal prosperity and uh, make ourselves have an advantage, don't we? And that's what Abimelech is asking them to do. Which is best for you? Don't we do that in politics? When we think about who we're going to vote for, don't we ask who is going to make me more prosperous or take less out of my pocketbook? Or, or you know, who is best for me? Not what's best from the standpoint of what does God direct, but what is best for me. I want to tell you something. It didn't work out for these folks. We'll see that tonight. What they thought was best for them didn't really work out to their good at all. They're they're going to find themselves dead because they made the wrong choice. So we better be careful, hadn't we? We can't choose things because it's best for us in politics or in the church. You know, there are a lot of folks who try to make a decision about the church. 
as to which is best for them. How many have ever seen, quite often you see it in newspapers, but there'll be an, an ad, and I can remember one in, um, in one of the papers we used to get. There was a big ad, almost a half a page, and it had a whole bunch of different churches listed in there. That they had bought, uh, uh, you know, the little ads, and they were listed. And, and there was always on that newspaper every week, go to the church of your choice, or attend the church of your choice. Why not choose the church of Jesus' choice? You see, we have to not think what is best for us. Somebody says, well, you know, I'm not going to that church because it's boring. I'm not going to that church because of um, something that they do or they don't do or something they teach or they don't teach. Please don't tell me I'm a sinner. I don't want to hear that. Well, folks, if we're not sinners, then why are you going to church to start with? Why do you need a Savior? You don't need a Savior if you're not a sinner. You see, we don't want to hurt. We don't want to have our toes stepped on, those kinds of things. We want what is best for me, or at least what we think is best for us in our own eyes. That's the argument that Abimelech makes. That's how he gets them to choose him. He wants them to choose what's best for them, at least that's his words. It doesn't really work out that way. You see, we have to learn to make wise choices. We need to learn to make wise choices. We need to always begin by asking, what does God say? What's God's thinking on this? Not, what do I want? That doesn't, that doesn't lead us in the right spot. But not only that, we might need to ask the question when we're making choices, where's this going to lead me? I've already mentioned it tonight. It didn't lead them to a good spot. I've already said they're going to find themselves dead. Many of them dead by horrible death. And so the choice that they made, they didn't look down the road and see what might happen. They were looking at right now. How's it going to benefit me right now? They looked at that and they made a poor decision based on that. But number three is we're making wise choices. We probably need to ask every time, will whatever it is we're doing glorify God? This didn't glorify God. What had God said even before they entered the promised land? Well, I'm going to paraphrase it, but you don't want a king. I'll be your king. You follow after me. You don't want an earthly king because you know what's going to happen? When you get an earthly king, his heart's going to be for him, not for you. He's going to tax you. He's going to raise an army against you. He's going to do a lot of things against you. But the people, they didn't worry about that. Abimelech came and said, make me the king. Do what's good for you. And they did. And they didn't have concern about whether or not it would glorify God. I would suggest to you tonight, they didn't even consider what God thought. 
Because we've already read back in chapter 8 about these people. They had rejected God, turned away from Him, and set up their own God. But we as Christians, we better be thinking, is whatever we're going to do going to glorify our God? So Abimelech, he wanted to be king. But secondly tonight, Abimelech becomes the king. He becomes the king. Now we find that in the next few verses, beginning at verse 4 and going through verse number 6, we're going to find the making of Abimelech as the king. The Bible says, And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. They went and they made Abimelech king. Abimelech actually becomes the king. Now notice what they did here at the beginning of this passage. They gave him 70 pieces of silver. They gave him some money to begin with. They, they as much as paid him taxes at the very beginning of his, of his rule, of his reign. Here's you some money. If you're going to be a king, you've got to be a rich king. You've got to have money. But what did Abimelech do with the money? The very first thing he did was raise him an army, didn't he? Notice he says that he got him some worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Those two words are interesting words. When you, when you look up the, the meaning of the original words that are used there, the word worthless simply means empty. What do we mean by that? They're empty. Empty of what? Empty of morals. Empty of empathy. Empty of feeling. Empty of mercy. All of those things, we'll see about them. They're worthless fellows. But they're also reckless fellows, the Bible says. Again, when you notice the meaning of the original word there, it means something like this, arrogant, rude, lacking respect. You know, it sort of is made to appear that these guys are the tough guys. They don't have any feelings, and they really don't care what anybody thinks about them or anything they do. That's the kind of folks he raises to be in his army. His men, his protectors. Now, obviously, they didn't have any respect for human life, because what do they do? They immediately go and start executing... On one stone, now picture that if you will. The Bible specifically says that he kills these 70 brothers or these 70 sons on one stone. They're lining them up out here at some rock and they're executing them one after the other. 
except for Jotham. Didn't start out too good with the men that he hires to be his men. That should have keyed the men of Shechem off. It should have shown them, you know, really and truly, I don't know if we want this guy or not. But even though he did that, and even though he went and eliminated all of his competition, when he comes back, the Bible says, the men of Shechem made him their king. He was pretty convincing, evidently. They made him their king. Generally, we think about Saul as being the first king of Israel. And he is listed by God as being the first king of Israel. This man, Abimelech, was made king by the men of Shechem and another little place called Beth Milo. He became their king. Just the the town of Shechem and the surrounding area was what he had the rule over. But I want you to notice Judges chapter 9 at verse 22. The Bible does mention his kingship, but it does say about him that he ruled over Israel for three years, at least that local part. But the word ruled is quite interesting. It's used only three times in the Old Testament. Now we know there were a whole lot more kings under the Old Testament law who ruled, don't we? This word that's translated ruled here in Judges chapter 9 at verse number 22 simply means to act as a ruler. He wasn't recognized by God. He had taken it upon himself to be the king of Israel, and he was acting out as a ruler. And so Saul was the first king. You know, God didn't want that to happen. This man was just acting out in the role of a king. And so, you know, he may have been defying God, and he may have thought he had some power, but in the eyes of God, he still wasn't what he thought he was. Isn't that true with us a lot of times? Don't we think ourselves to be more than what we are? And when, the, when we're in the eyes of God, it's not really that way. We may think we're following Christ by choosing the church of our choice. We may think we're saved by choosing the way that we want to worship God. But in the eyes of God, we're not really what we think we are. Isn't there something said about that in the New Testament book of Matthew? Why call ye me Lord, Lord? Folks are calling him Lord, Lord. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say for you to do? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. 
And so as we look at him, he became king, king in his eyes, king in the eyes of the men of Shechem and, uh, and the other surrounding areas. But he wasn't really and truly the king of Israel. He acted as though he was. He ruled over Israel like he was. But that wasn't really his lot. But then next tonight, I want us to see that Abimelech's kingship is challenged. His kingship is challenged. Jotham is mentioned in the reading there that we just did in regard to uh, the sons of Gideon, Jerubbabel, being put to death. Uh, he is the youngest son. He hides himself, and he alone is, is left alive. But look at verse number 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top when it was told that uh, Abimelech was king, had been made king, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. He's about to challenge the kingship of, of, uh, of his half-brother, uh, of Abimelech. He goes up to Mount Gerizim. Anybody remember anything about Mount Gerizim? Mount Gerizim is where the children of Israel, where they were told by Moses when they came to the promised land, to half of them, part of them, they were told which part. Part of them were to go on Mount Gerizim, and part of them were to go on Mount Ebal. And the blessings and the curses of the law were to be read by the priests who were down in the valley. Mount Gerizim was called the Mount of Blessing. The people who were on that side, when the blessings were read, they were to respond. When the curses were read, the people on Mount Ebal were to respond. But here is Mount Gerizim again. Mount Gerizim is also mentioned in the New Testament as well, in the book of John, chapter number 4. When Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, the woman says, it's on this mountain that our fathers say that we're to worship. Well, which mountain did the Samaritans worship on? Mount Gerizim. But here it's mentioned in the book of Judges as being the mountain on which uh, this son, uh, Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel, he goes up there and he says, folks, I want to tell you something. Now, Jotham tells him a little story. We'd call it a parable. And it's one of the very few parables in the Old Testament. But I want you to notice here, if you have your Bible open, you'll see some things about it. He, he's going to tell about the trees. And he said the trees decided they wanted a king. And so he pictures the trees as talking to one another, trying to get a king who would be over the trees. And so as you look at it, you understand that Jotham tells this parable, and this parable is, well, the trees, they went to the olive tree. And they asked the olive tree, will you be the king? Will you rule over us? Well, the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored, go whole sway over the trees? He basically says, nope, I'm not going to be the king over the trees. Well, they leave the olive tree 
and they go to the fig tree and they say, Fig tree, will you be the king over us? And so the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go whole sway over the trees? Fig tree says, Nope, I'm not going to be the king either. Don't ask me to be the king. I've got good fruit. And I want to continue taking care of people by giving them fruit. So they left the uh, fig tree and they went to the vine, the vine being the grapevine. And they said, Mr. Vine, would you be the king over us? And the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go whole sway over the trees? No, I've got another purpose. I've got something that I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm not going to be the king over, over the trees. And so they leave the vine and they go to the bramble. They go to the thorn bush. And they say, Mr. Bramble, Mr. Thornbush, will you be the king over the trees? And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. Well, let's just stop right there for a minute. How much shade can you get under a briar? Under a thorn bush? Especially if you're asking a tree who's way up here to be under the thorn bush. If you're acting in good faith and you really want me to be the king, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. You know, that latter part of that is more likely than a tree being able to get under the bramble. What happens out in the woods when things become overgrown? And things become dry. How, how do forest fires get started, most of them? It's not usually from the top of a tree, is it? Lightning might, may strike one and cause something to happen like that. But generally speaking, what happens when a forest fire starts is somebody catches all of the undergrowth, all of the brushes, all of the brambles on fire, and it burns things up. And so he makes sense, you know, with his, with his parable that he gives here. He said, if you really want me to be king, get down here under my shade. But if not, then what's going to happen is I'll burn, the, I'll burn the forest. I'll burn the forest down. And so that's the parable that he stands on Mount Gerizim and shouts out to the people of Shechem, and says, listen to me, you need to, you need to understand these things. Well, you drop on down to verse 16 in Judges chapter 9. He's going to, Jotham is going to sort of give the interpretation of his parable. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity, when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved. For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem. 
because He is your relative. If then you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. Let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. As he was telling that parable about the trees, he says, what I'm really talking about is your relationship with Abimelech, whom you've made king. If you've acted in good faith in making him king, then, then really you're to bow down below his shade. But if not, it's like the parable itself. The fire is going to burn everybody up. It, it will eventually kill not only you, but also Abimelech. Now mind you, Jotham, he has to run and hide. He's up on Mount Gerizim. Some have estimated that it would, it would have taken them at least, somebody down in the city at least running full speed up the side of the mountain 20 minutes to get there to catch him. And so he had time to flee, and he does. But he has, he makes his voice heard. They listen to him. He gives this parable. Now, to make a long story short tonight, they really had not acted in good faith in making Abimelech their king. They had not done what was good and what was right. Judges chapter 9 at verse 23, the Bible says, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. You've already got an uprising in this kingdom. They haven't, they haven't done what was right. Verse 25. The leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. Now Abimelech, being the king, he should have been protecting people who were passing by, but the men of Shechem, they were attacking them and robbing them. Even more than that, you know, those who passed through a kingdom usually had to pay a tax or a toll. And so in robbing them, they were taking what these people would be able to give the king in his taxes or his tolls. And so that's why, or one of the reasons why, they, it said that uh, they were in ambush against him. As a result of that, if you go on down to verse 42, there are some battles that ensue. You see, Abimelech and his people fight against the men of Shechem. And I want us to read there. The Bible says on the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and he saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city. And all that day 
He captured the city and killed the people who were in it and raised the city, tore it down, and sowed it with salt. Why would he sow it with salt? Nothing would be able to grow. He's fighting against them. He's conquering them, but he's not content with that. Look at verse 46. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put it up against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. The bramble burned the forest. Remember the parable, the story? In this case, he literally burned the forest. Or at least the leaders of the forest, the leaders of the tower, the leaders of, of Shechem. He literally burned them alive. That'd be a horrible death, wouldn't it? But that's what happened. But we're not finished. I said battles ensued. There were battles at Shechem and so forth. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. There was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it, shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to do the same thing to it that he had done in Shechem, to burn it. Well, he really shouldn't have done that. Keep on reading. He went up there to, to burn the tower, and what happens? And a certain woman, verse 53, threw an upper millstone. An upper millstone is described as a rock on which they would grind stuff. An upper millstone from that time generally would measure somewhere around 18 inches and would be quite thick, quite heavy. Woman up on the tower threw that upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And now he's lying mortally wounded. Verse 54, he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman, kill me. And the young man thrust him through, and he died. What did Jotham's parable say? Well, it said this, if they hadn't acted in good faith with the Bramble King, then he said, I'll burn you down. But in burning the forest down, he burned himself down as well. And that's what this man, Abimelech, is trying to do the second time. 
He was able to do it at Shechem. It didn't work out so well for him at Thebes. He himself died. That's the whole story of the parable of the Bramble King that was told by Jotham. You know, really and truly what we have here is the principle of reaping and sowing. Or sowing and reaping. Put that the right direction. Remember in the book of Galatians chapter 6 at verse number 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. We understand that from the New Testament. But go back to the Old Testament. Judges chapter 9, 23 and 24 again. God sent that evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. The leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brother. What does that passage say? They turned against him so that Abimelech would be avenged for what he had done to his own family. Look at verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. You see, God repaid them for their sin. The pair, or the principle rather, of sowing and reaping. If that principle held true with Abimelech and the people of Shechem, it'll hold true with us. Whatever we sow down here on this earth, that's what we'll reap. And so we better be sowing the right crop, hadn't we? If we want to reap the right harvest. As we close our lesson tonight, Jotham's parable, of course, is one of the few in the Old Testament. We know Jesus presented many parables, but this one in the Old Testament is one of the very few that's there. In reality, what happens is the good trees refuse to be the king. The fig tree, the olive tree, and the, the vine, they all refuse to be the king. Only the thorn bush, the bramble, not even worthy to be called a tree, said that he would rule over them. The point is this, uh, others of Gideon's sons were likely better prospects at being a king. They were probably more honest and would have done the people better than, uh, than uh, Abimelech did. But they were not chosen. One who was not worthy took the post. He was the Bramble King. What we need to remember is someone's going to rule our life. Just like someone ruled the people of Shechem, they made the wrong choice about it, someone is going to be king of our life. As one who has never obeyed the gospel, you have a king on the throne of your life. And his name is Satan. And he is not worthy to rule your life. For the one who has become a Christian, Jesus is sitting on the throne of your life. 
The one who remains a faithful subject in the kingdom of Christ has Christ as their king. But there are those who become unfaithful in their Christian life. And as a result of that, we're seeking to dethrone the king, King Jesus, and reinstate our former ruler into our life. What we need to remember is this. We do not want the Bramble King to be the king of our life. No, we're not talking about Abimelech. We're talking about the one whom we serve. We want the good king. We want the great king. We want the king of kings to be the one who sits on the throne of our life. And so we need to act in good faith. We need to choose wisely who that will be. If you're not a Christian tonight, Satan sits on the throne of your life. But you don't have to leave this place with Satan as your king. You can be immersed, baptized for the remission of sins, and as such you can be entered into the kingdom of Christ. You can change your king tonight. If you're here tonight and you're a faithful Christian, we're so thankful for that. You're serving the king of your life, Jesus Christ. But if you're here tonight and your life is not right with your Father in heaven, you've not been, you've not been living the way that you're supposed to do, you're the one seeking to dethrone the king and put that old king back on the throne. My advice to you is stay with the king you've got. Stay with the one who's able to save you. Stay with the one who cares for you and can give you eternal life after this life is over. If you're here tonight and you need to respond to the Lord's invitation for whatever reason it may be, why don't you come right now as together we stand and sing.